and welcome to Zippy the Wonder Snail. We are actually live together. This is the first time we've ever done this at Zippy. And comrade, I am so glad. Yeah, yes, our live studio audience, what a joy it is of to course. be here. Yeah. Yes. yeah, this is good, isn't it, comrade? This is a borderline live Zippy. We're not going to tell you how the magic happens, but we are together in person. That's very exciting. Yep. Magical our snails, you just have to kind of let it go. Are we going to let our theme music go? I think there's some sort of error. Okay. No, we're going to talk about the Cardinals now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Probably don't deserve that perky music, but anyway, we'll get into it. Yeah, well, okay. I'll get rid of the music because, yeah, Comrade, so the last Zippy episode, I just have to, I should have had a clip to replay of this because the last Zippy episode, yes. you said that we were going to end the season 10 games ahead in the Central Division. And presently, at the informal halfway point, All-Star break just passed, yep. uh, at the halfway point, we are 11 games back. So, yes, that's correct. So help me out here. I, I, am, I am a true believer. I'm a Cardinals fan through and through. I'm also depressed and, you know, occasionally mumble things like fire Mo uh, these well, days. So listen, talk to me. I, well, talk me I'm going to say a couple things. Um, my exact prediction in terms of winning by 10 games may not come true, uh, but I'm still not worried. I still think that we can win the division. Um, but I will say, and the audience is pleased, yes. Uh, but I will say in defense of Craig Council, the manager of the Milwaukee Brewers, this guy really knows what he's doing. I didn't think Milwaukee had the goods to be anywhere near where they are sitting in first place, 10 games above 500. Um, but Craig council needs, he knows how to get the most out of his players and he can get these young guys to believe. So that's the only, uh, big challenge is if Milwaukee plays well, no matter what we do, we might not be able to catch them, but I still believe the Cardinals can catch the Reds and the Brewers and the Cubs and the Pirates. And we're going to be the Central Division champions for yeah. 2023. We, we have to catch. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I totally agree. We can't, we can't allow this to end this way. And especially, you know, comrade, you and I are never going to live this down if the Pirates stay ahead of us. Be, for those who may not know uh, jason and i are in a men's bible study together with a diehard pirates fan and it will be unbearable if the pirates stay ahead of us well even mr paul stewart the aforementioned member of the bible study knows and he believes that the pirates have no earthly chance to stay in front of the cardinals for the entire season yes yeah so but yes currently the pirates are ahead of the cardinals but it's only by a few games yeah. and what we're going to chase down the Cubs too. And once we're in second place or at least third place, we'll be all right. That, and that we'll chase them down. So I'm not worried about it. Yeah. That I like that. I see. I hear bells in the distance. There were bells in the air. It uh, sounded almost like a ring camera. That's what that sounded You're like. You're always home with a Ring camera. They're not That's official right. sponsors. doing free advertising for that But now? if Ring would like to sponsor us, uh, we'd accept that. And see, we this, really is, this is the, the difference when recording live. So <laughs> it's always interesting. So, Comrade, let's, let's just sort of walk through this a little bit. So it seems like the, the, the real issue that I see with the Cardinals right now is that, well, a bunch of issues, but it seems like it's pitching, pitching, pitching. And I... I, I can't claim to be the only one that said this, but I know before the season when we talked, I was saying pitching. And it seems like uh, sometimes there are games where the bats are kind of quiet, but they often still manage to get a lead at some point. Sometimes right. the bats are on fire and the ball must be, you know, 10 feet wide. I mean, they're just hitting like crazy. Right. But no matter what, it seems like uh, our bullpen especially just can't hold on to it. The starting pitching hasn't been really that great, but the bullpen can't hold on to the lead. So how do you see if we're looking at the way this season changes? Are you expecting something to happen at the trade deadline? Are you expecting uh, our current pitchers to somehow um, rise to the occasion? I'm going to say something weird. I don't think anyone's getting traded at the trade deadline. I don't think the Cardinals are going to make a move at all. 
I do think, first of all, I do believe in the guys that we have already down there, and that includes the bullpen. Um, and we're going to get Ryan Helsley back at some point, which will solidify that very final spot. And that way, Gallegos um, and those other couple guys don't have to try to nail down the ninth inning. That would um, be nice. And, what, and that's the thing about bullpens in Major League Baseball. If there's a guy that's out of place, mm-hmm. it throws everything off. Yeah. When that guy gets in place, then everyone feels comfortable. They know their role. I mean, that's a cliche, but... Yeah, it's true. If you have a role and then you have to change it, it's weird. And we've brought up some young arms from AAA just in the last couple of days, and they've pitched really well. Uh, Kyle Leahy came into the game, mm-hmm. and he he was a little frazzled, but he got through it. And then JoJo Romero came in and finished the game. So those are two young guys that we didn't that weren't even down there as of three days ago, and they came in today and they got the job done. So it was eight to four today. I'm not worried about it. I think it's going to be fine. No, it's if it's not, oh well. We've had 12 losing seasons in the last 53 years. I th- let's let's have some perspective here. We're so spoiled, but we're going to be fine. I do believe no. that. I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. So, well, I do believe that. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, I, I'll, I'll give you a little applause for that too. That's not, that. I want to believe. I really do. So, In I, fairness, let's bring up a couple other challenges that are going on. Um, we've lost Wayno to an injury yep. right now, and uh, that stinks. I mean, we all love Wayno, and I don't care what they do to him. He's still my favorite, and I love him, you know. So he'll be back, and just having him back, even if he, heaven forbid, even if he doesn't pitch that great, doesn't matter. It's Wayno. We love him. We right. need him. Yeah. You know, for attitude, for everything. So, right. yeah. Um, we've been missing a couple of our outfielders. We've been we've been missing Tyler O'Neill all year. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can get him on the field, who knows if we can do that? But if we can get him on the field, remember that's a guy that hit thirty home runs in a season. That guy can change a game just by himself. And, you know, we do have the perennial MVP, Paul Goldschmidt, yes. and perennial almost MVP, Nolan Arenado. So uh, this is a good, this is a really good baseball team, and their record does not reflect how good they are. Yeah. I might be the only one to say this. And no, no, let me say this real quick. I would not fire Ollie Mar- Marmel. I would not fire John Mosellock. I love them both. I think they're wonderful people. I think they have the the right attitude, the right discipline. They make good decisions in general. I know there's a lot of criticism of John Mosellock. I don't agree with that. I think we got bit by an injury bug. We had a bad April and it's just snowballed on us. That's yeah. I think that's what's happening. But there's still time. Yeah. Um and, and I I'm so. sympathetic, particularly with Mosellock. I'm I'm not quite as much on the marmal um train i'd say like i I kind of mixed feelings about him i feel like he feels still a little mechanical in the bullpen we can have pitchers like gaigos for example who can have several bad days in a row and it still feels like he just sort of trots them out which i mean that's been a criticism of our last few managers actually right uh but if i i i think i felt a little more comfortable with the way schilt managed the team myself um i can but, see that but i also think that firing was unfair so we're yeah, on the same page yeah. with that so and, and of course there's the bias here I, i'd love somehow i know this is probably not going to happen but i would so love to see a certain catcher come back as a manager i think it's too soon because if because if he thought that he was in a position to do that we would have already seen him at the ballpark you know as a guest in the dugout something like that I think Yachty wants to take some more time away. And I think potentially if something were to happen, it would be next season. Yeah. Um, but I, I still don't see that happening. Remember, um, even when they fired Schilt, the Cardinals love to do things in-house. Ollie played with the Cardinals organization, um, had a brief minor league career. He was already a well-respected coach on the staff when he got a look for the manager. So they're not going to give up on this one easily. I know there's a lot of angry Cardinal fans out there 
and wanting both of those guys' jobs. But I also think the people who know a lot, I'm not necessarily including myself in this, but the people who know a lot about baseball don't just get upset over one bad half a season. Yeah. You know, you look at the whole, and look, Ollie Marmel, we won 93 games last season. Yeah. So the, he obviously knows something about managing a, yeah. a baseball team. That's fair enough. So uh, let's, let's give Ollie the space and let's give the boys the space. And if you ask the guys on our team, how long have we been talking? But if you ask the guys on our team, they're going to blame themselves. They're not going to blame Ollie. They're not going to blame the coaches, and rightly so. No. Well, uh, we'll have to come back to this. Yeah. We need to talk about it uh, some more. We need to see our team grow, and that brings us to our first sponsor, Faith Tree Grow. You can visit it at grow.faithtree.com. And when you go to grow.faithtree.com, you can deploy the power of AI for Bible study. Now, there's a lot of questions out there, right? People wonder about AI and what do we make of AI, right? Because uh, it's a little nervous. But my big thing is AI is going to be out there. Let's use it for good. And that's what we're doing at grow.faithtree.com. If you go over there, you say you have that Bible passage, you're not quite sure where it's at in the Bible. Not you, comrade. I mean, anyone who's around Jason, you know, you just name a topic and he starts giving you exact verses from the Bible. He's, he's a better cross-reference than the little cross-reference column in the Bible. But, but for the rest of us, as the dummies books used to say, uh, you can go to grow.faithtree.com, type in what you're looking for, and it will find it even if you can't use the exact text. It also does traditional search. You can type in a Bible reference. However you get there, once you get to a verse, it will generate commentary based on on the section you're looking at. So if you type in one verse, it will give you a commentary applicable to that one verse. If you type in five verses, it will give you commentary applicable to those five verses. Whatever you type in, it will prepare it for you. This is the power of AI for good. Everyone that signs up for a free account gets five free searches a month with a minimal donation to the ministry. You also receive unlimited searches every single month. So check out grow.faithtree.com. We're thankful for that sponsorship in the show today. By the way, that was the longest commercial that you've ever done. <laughs> well, you know, comrade, I may have gotten the music reversed because that probably should have been our lead into the Cardinals segment, but it's actually our lead into the St. Louis City SC segment. And things are looking really for, we're talking about an expansion team here. I know next to nothing about soccer, but I know whether they're winning or losing. They're doing pretty good, aren't they? Yeah, let me give you the details on that. They have 13 wins, eight losses, and two draws. They're sitting at the top of the Western Conference with 41 points, just ahead of the Seattle Sounders, who are a former MLS champion. So this expansion team, and they say on every broadcast, we should just take the expansion tag right off these guys because they're just good. Um, and we're so excited to have this team in St. Louis. The coach, Bradley Carnell, he had a brief interim coach coaching stint with the New York Red Bulls, who is also... Uh, one of the one of the elite teams in Major League Soccer. Uh, so they've got the goods. Our two designated players are Jao Klaus, the Brazilian striker. He's hurt right now, but came up with five goals in his first five games, as well as a mess of assists before he got hurt. And then Edward Leuven is the midfielder. Um, he scored a bunch of points, mostly on assists. But he had a nice goal last night on a free kick just outside of the penalty area. Uh, so St. Louis City SC is really buzzing, really flying around. They're on a league break until August the 20th. But also the league came up with something called Leagues Cup, which is a new competition uh, between the MLS franchises and the Mexican Soccer League. So that would be really exciting to see teams from the Mexican league um competing with our teams 
um, and see what happens. And it'll be a new, like a competition they do every year, a tournament style thing. So, and then back to the league play on August 20th. So very exciting stuff. So help a, a, a soccer neophyte like myself. Um, how do how does the league cup fit into the overall picture? Does it have any impact on the season? And does every MLS team get to play in it? How, how does that work? Every MLS team gets to play and they're divided up into groups, kind of like the world cup that comes along every four years. And so there'll be a group stage. And then after the group stage, there'll be the knockout stage. And then whoever wins that will win the league's cup for this year. And then they'll just do it again next year. And it doesn't impact the league standings, but what happens with, Another competition like this is it allows you to rotate players to keep your stars fresh, to keep your team in good form as you go back into league play. Because it's a long season. It's a 34-week season that goes all the way from you know mid-February to November, the MLS league. So barely a break. I mean, a couple of months and you're back at it. So you need to keep you know, 35, 40, 50 guys in the mix. And that's the other thing about St. Louis City is they're deep. They could take the 11 starting players that they usually play with and swap out all 11 with possibly the exception of the goaltender, Roman Berkey, and they could still beat you. So that that's what you want. You want to be able to just plug different guys in and still win. Um, and Leaks Cup helps you to keep guys fresh and to keep your form good. And interesting, gives the fans a chance to see, you know, guys in other countries. Yeah. So, well, I have to say, just hearing about it, uh, not to spend more time on baseball after we did our last segment, but I would so love someday. This is my dream. I'd love to see the um, MLB play against the professional Japanese and Korean uh, baseball leagues. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I think that'd be yeah. Fun. Well, and I think League's Cup is sort of soccer's version of the World Baseball Classic. Yeah. To to mix it together there where you get people from uh, all different countries playing and competing for for something that matters. I mean, I think there's a lot of criticism that, oh, this won't matter and this will get star players hurt, and the players loved it. So I think they're going to love League's Cup. Yeah. In equal measure, so we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I enjoyed the World Baseball Classic. My my only downside to it, I think, for myself, is that I'd like to I'd love to see someday our Redbirds actually, you know, as a team. Yeah, play. like it's, go to Japan. like you, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, while we're still on sports, uh, just for a moment, uh, for those of you that aren't necessarily big sports fans, bear with us. We have more topics, but we we're front loading it. It's summer, so we're talking sports, and let's um, go over to tennis for a second. Yeah, so those of you who are tennis fans, you are quite aware that we had the Wimbledon Championship Final today for the men. Novak Djokovic, uh, usually the number one player in the world, was trying for his fifth consecutive Wimbledon, 45th straight match win on Wimbledon center court, and he was up against current world number one Carlos Alcaraz in the championship final. And Alcaraz won the match in five sets. I cannot rattle off the score to you because I forgot. Uh, but five-set match, and it's the first time in 10 years that Novak Djokovic has lost on center court. Hmm. Center court being the big stadium court there at the All England Club. Um, and it was sort of a changing of the guard, a generational changing of the guard, because Alcaraz is 20 years old. Novak Djokovic is 36. So Novak Djokovic with his 23 major titles, which is the most all-time for men, uh, against Carlos Alcaraz trying to win his second one. He won the U.S. Open uh, last August and September. Uh, so now he's got two. He's got a Wimbledon championship, and he goes into New York as one of the favorites, at least. Hmm. So... And he holds on to his number one ranking. Uh, it was a great match. It was great to see the young kid play so well against such a legend like Novak Djokovic. Everyone knows that Roger Federer was my guy. Um, oh, and that was a record that 
Novak wasn't able to get today. He's won Wimbledon seven times. Roger leads all time with eight Wimbledon championships. So he would have tied Roger for Wimbledon victories. So he's still at seven. Roger leads with eight. So I'm pleased about that. I'm glad Roger has at least one record that Novak hasn't taken away from him. But the beautiful thing about Alcaraz is he reminds me of Roger in the way that he can just pick out the right shot at any time and be able to execute it perfectly. Because if you hit the wrong shot at the wrong time, you know, even if you're powerful or even if you're quick, it doesn't help you. So yeah. you have to pick out the right shot at the right time. And the young kid already knows how to do that. Uh, so very exciting stuff from this young player. Sounds like it. Well, I, I would imagine then we will be seeing more about him in your future OFB sports columns. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because the changing of the guard is a theme that's developing and going to have to write about that. So We should put in the show notes a link to your retrospective on, on Federer's career that, that we published a while back, I, I think. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still mourning Roger's retirement from last October. Yeah. So I, but it, it seems like the shadow of Roger Federer is still there uh, over Wimbledon because he has such a winning eight times and even beating the great American Pete Sampras, who also won seven times at Wimbledon, just makes you beloved for the Wimbledon crowd. And they still love Roger and he knows that. There's a funny story about Roger Federer. One time, he was trying to get into Wimbledon, I think it was during the tournament or just before, and he forgot his player card, and they wouldn't let him in the gates. Really? And you would think, you know, recognize one of the greatest of all time. He's like, and the, the, the guard lady was like, yeah, I recognize you, Roger, but you're not getting in without your player card. <laughs> and he's like, oh, man, I never do this, but you realize I've won this eight times. <laughs> and so finally, finally they went and got somebody else and the guy was like, ah, the lady's boss. And the guy was like, hi, Roger, and let him on through. But that lady, she wasn't going to let him in without that player pass. So she had her, good for her. her. She has to follow the rules. Yeah, she had her orders. She was sticking to it. But yeah, so that's, that's, tennis that's is a beautiful sport. I know it's not the most popular sport in terms of Americans, but I've watched tennis for a long time and Love it very much, so I reserve the right to talk way too much about it here on Zippy. Well, thanks for, a chance. thanks for bringing us up to date. It sounds yeah. like it was a great match. Uh, again, I, I, great tournament overall, so. Yeah. One of the great American sports could be considered the legal system. <laughs> what do you say? And it's often entertaining. I'll give you that. It often is sometimes a little worrisome, but also very interesting. And of course the world series of the legal system would be the big blockbuster decisions from the Supreme court that come out every June. And I am saying this somewhat in jest because of course what the SCOTUS decides, the Supreme court decides has ramifications throughout our society every year but it's also just very interesting and yeah some of, sometimes even when you know how they're going to decide it's so interesting to see how they arrive at it and we, we had several really interesting cases that got wrapped up this last session a few, few weeks ago now maybe we should start with let's start with a religious freedom one what, what do you say yeah okay uh before we do that before we get into the specific cases i want to say a couple of things about Supreme Court decisions. Um, you know, Christian political activism related to just anywhere in our political system, but even including the courts and the Supreme Court, uh, has grown and it's gotten more sophisticated. But I think it's really easy for the average Christian to uh, to look at the the small picture or how a case 
the result of a case, how it was decided, and miss some of the details. But what you need to know, what you should know, is that the details are extremely important. Yes. Not just the outcome. So these, these are three cases, and I didn't mean to preempt your introduction there, but Go for it. These are three cases that illustrate uh, not just uh, either desirable or undesirable outcomes, but the importance of details, how judicial philosophy is not the same thing as political philosophy. Yes. Those kinds of things. Um, and these are three great examples of yeah. that, and we'll get into that as we talk about them. Yeah, I see what you're doing here. You're just giving us the shadow docket of Zippy. Yeah, well, you know. No. Uh, um, so uh, a little court joke. The uh, I think you raised something that's so important with judicial philosophy. And, and to me, I'm frustrated when I read so many takes on what the Supreme Court decides in every, any given year. Because whatever side loses announces the world is now ending and how everything that we hold dear is going to be taken away. And the side that wins basically makes it sound like everything has now been solved, right? I mean, that's how it gets presented. And right. it's almost never that black and white. Maybe the case we're going to start with is closer to that simply because it's a unanimous decision. You don't see that many that are highly publicized, although I was really encouraged just as we're talking generally. I saw, I think it was something like, I want to say 51%. I think it was 51% this last session of all the Supreme Court cases were unanimous. We don't hear about that in the news. Everyone talks about the conservative justices, the liberal justices, how it's all polarized because it needs to fit into our nice red and blue division of America. And there were only a handful of cases, just a very minimal amount. Now, some of them were really big cases, but only a minimal amount of cases this year. And this is not unusual, where all the conservative justices ruled one way and all the liberal justices ruled an, the opposite way. There's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of unanimous decisions because, like you said, this this doesn't meet our nice partisan divide that we like to perpetuate. And and the fact is, no offense to the media, but the media is not going to tell us about all the unanimous decisions, all the crossing over. They're only going to tell us about when that doesn't happen. Right. So... And um, I studied the Supreme Court a little bit in college. And what I can tell you, former justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist has a book called The Supreme Court, which is often used in high schools and colleges to teach people broadly about the U.S. Supreme Court. He says in that book that chief justices of the Supreme Court in general try to achieve unanimous or near unanimous decisions whenever possible the ones that are not the five to four decisions like brown versus board which is an incredibly important decision uh desegregating schools back in 1954 those are the ones we hear about the close ones the tight ones uh stuff like that uh, bush bush v gore and one element of it the 2000 election supreme court case was five to four in one uh one small holding of the case, but in the fundamental issue of the case, it was actually seven to two. But if you look back at the media coverage of Bush v. Gore in the two th the disputed 2000 election, no media outlet will ever report to you that the actual decision was seven to two. Yeah, that that's not, it doesn't fit the narrative. Because isn't seven to two a whole lot more comforting than five to four? Yes. Uh, and they try to achieve as much unanimous uh, unanimous agreement as they can. So why don't you tell us about the specific yeah. cases? So let's talk about Gerald Groff versus DeJoy, the Postmaster General. And this case is, I think, really interesting on a number of levels. It's uh, uh, the, the man, Groff, was a mail carrier, part-time mail carrier, semi-retired one of the rural mail carriers. So he'd picked up a route after retiring from his other job. He's a committed Christian and he had picked up the route because this was a work, a job he could do part-time that didn't involve missing church. He, he feels very strongly about a, a Sabbath observance 
and mail comes six days a week, right? Except now it doesn't because Amazon back in 2015 paid money to keep the postal service open on Sunday so they could deliver packages for Amazon. And so here you have a man who starts in 2011, I believe it is, working for the postal service, delivering his rural mail route. And suddenly the postal service is open on, on Sundays. And he said, I can't work on Sundays. It's against my religious beliefs. At first, the postal service was willing to accommodate that and reassign schedules and so on. But in 2018, they decided it was unfair to the other workers to allow this particular gentleman to have Sundays off. And so they said he could either report on Sundays or he would be fired for failing to report for duty. Um, that's what happened. So that's the case that came before the Supreme Court. 9-0 decision. The court rules in his favor. Here's the, the key thing, I think, in this case, as I understand it, which is that there had been previous precedent in the Supreme Court that said if there was going to be an imposition on the employer, there there were means by which the employer couldn't be forced to provide a religious exemption for somebody. However, the current decision said that needs to be a substantial imposition on the employer, that you can't just say, well, I have to change a schedule. It's not going to be exactly how I wanted things, so I'm going to not agree. And interesting about this, and maybe tying into that 9-0 decision, is that you had a broad swath of the religious community in the United States, Sikhs, Muslims, Jews, Christians, all providing briefs to the court in favor of Groff, because they, they saw that this this has ramifications throughout our society well beyond whether you have to work on Sunday. Uh, and a couple things. Let me take you back, and I know we've talked about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1990 before on the show, um, but that was in response to a Supreme Court decision in 1990 involving some Native Americans who used a psychoactive drug in their observances, and then a guy was fired uh, because of a drug test. So when the Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1990, it was to bring uh, the federal law into conformity with that brand new Supreme Court decision at the time. And when we're talking about um, sexual ethics and LGBT issues, it is interesting that nobody brings up the original context of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So, but within the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, there is plenty of guidance on how to accommodate and under what circumstances the government must accommodate. I would say that the Postal Service lost the case on, I, I haven't read the case yet, so I'm not sure, but I would say the Postal Service lost the case when he was accommodated for some period of time and then they stopped the accommodation um, without any reasonable explanation, no lag time, no, you know. So if you provide an accommodation for a religious observance, you can't just take it away on a whim. And I bet I would venture dollars to donuts that that was a large part of why it was unanimous. If they had lodged their objection when the petition for relief for religious observance was first made, then it could be, look, this is a substantial burden all the way back in 2011 and we can't help you. Or these are the conditions under which we would be able to accommodate you. And these are the conditions that we could not. But because they had already accommodated him, I think that sealed the Postal Service's fate. At least that's my instinct on that. I think that's a great point. And I think generally it gives me a great deal of encouragement. Here's the thing, and, and this is where I, I think people are often short-sighted in our political sphere on these matters. We need to keep in mind that that even if we happen to be in the majority in a particular moment, we may not be forever. And I, I think... You see a broad swath of issues, conservative or liberal. If it's if you're on the prevailing side, you don't think about this. But what what you see in a decision like this, and the people that were filing the amicus briefs concerning it, um, 
what you see is that here you have um, people recognizing they there's all these different ways that our, our religious beliefs come into our employment. And sometimes you're in the majority, sometimes you're in the minority. But what you don't want is the employer to be able to force someone to violate their sincerely held religious belief, reasonable belief. I mean, there's going to be some times where a particular set of beliefs simply doesn't fit a category of work, and the court didn't deny that. But we're talking broadly, right? Right. Um, and, you know, there there has long been a process for the accommodation of sincerely held religious belief and for the adjudication of um, employer-based concerns. Um, we had a couple more cases related to religious freedom to talk about. Yeah. But previous to this, remember during the uh, the Obama administration, the Little Sisters of the Poor raised an objection to the providing of um, employer-provided uh, contraceptives mm -hmm. within the health care coverage. And the that case was also near unanimous or if it was eight it might have been nine to zero but it was at least eight to one and the case hinged on um does the government have an avenue to still achieve its goals without burdening the sisters in their sincerely held belief and the administration eventually admitted yeah, we have ways around this. We just didn't try them. And if you tell the court we had ways around this, we didn't try it, you're going to lose. So Yeah. These these are two sort of prongs to the question, right? Because yeah. the postal service is sort of a a bit of an odd entity because it's a it's a semi-private business owned by the government. I that's probably yeah. not quite the right terminology, but it's not it's no longer a full government agency, but it is controlled by the federal government. And so here I think we get a case that's a little bit more applicable to general employment law in the private sector. Uh, the Little Sisters helped provide some guidance to correct things in the public sector. And these two together uh, are really important. And I think what you raised on the public sector one is crucial because especially it's one thing when a private business doesn't provide what we would like to see in accommodation. It's a whole nother ball game when you're dealing with the government itself being discriminatory against religion. And so um, speaking of which, great segue into 303 Creative LLC versus Alanis. Uh, this is a, a interesting case. And Comrade, you said you've done some analysis of this. Maybe you'd like to just walk us through it. I did briefly read the summary. Um, and this goes back to uh, basically the way this was decided was, is the government allowed to forcibly compel speech for which the, the owner of the business or whoever it's applied to does not agree with? And the court said, no, the government cannot compel speech. And that, that's what a cake is. That's what, you know, flyers would be. So we can have, we can have protected categories within the public law to protect various minorities from discrimination and undue hostility from other groups. But um, this anti-discrimination law, was it within the state of Colorado again? Yes. Yeah. Is it Colorado up to their tricks? Colorado... Mm -hmm. um, crafting an anti-discrimination statute that ran fully afoul of the First Amendment in both speech and religious expression. Um, so the free exercise clause and the free speech clause. You don't want to break two clauses of the First Amendment. That, ah. That's not good. So they're going to have to... And, and we're going to have to, as a society... I could go on rants uh, uh, against classical liberalism for days, but living in a classically liberal system, we're going to have to get together as groups of citizens and go, let's hash this out so we don't have to have our courts and other apparatus of government do it for us. We have to decide 
the the limits of tolerance versus the limits of free expression, both religious and speech. Uh, something's got to give. It can't be one way traffic as far as this is concerned. So right, yeah. Th- this is where we were talking earlier about how the media and then the people listening to the media often react in unhelpful ways on decisions. And I think this is one of those decisions we saw a lot of that because the way it basically was presented was Supreme Court gives Christians the right to discriminate against same-sex customers. That's that's the he- headline right. shouted from the rooftops kind of thing. And that is not what the decision did because it didn't say if someone comes in in any kind of class that's protected that you can come in and, and deny them service because the next thing they're saying, well, you're going to be back to denying people based on race service at a restaurant or, or what, what have you. I saw someone again on Twitter that I have friends that follow saying that this weekend, you know, it's just a matter of, it'll probably be the next Supreme court decision is going to be dealing with that. And it's just that what it was saying was not that you could deny someone based on being same sex uh, in a same sex marriage or not, or any other protected class. You can't, you can't deny them service. What it was saying is that you can't compel someone uh, in speech. And key to this, I think, is really interesting in the decision itself. The the um, I, the judge that was on the circuit court that was being quoted escapes my name. His name escapes me. But his point that he made was that, for example, imagine you have someone who comes who is vehemently anti-Semitic and comes to a Jewish. Um, I think he was talking about publishing house and says, I want to publish these horrible tracks. Um, you wouldn't want to make him do that. Um, and, and you can, he had several examples like that. Yeah. There, there's a difference between denying people service and say, here's a loaf of bread at my bakery. I'll sell you. And I am going to design this cake that purveys a particular message that I find deeply objectionable. Um, the, 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 there's a difference between denying service and refusing to make a message. Those are not the same thing. And also the to to be compelled via the message was happening through an agency of the government, and right. that was that adds another layer. Um, we I think a broad spectrum of groups and citizens in the United States would agree that we do not want the government compelling speech that's a right. direct that's directly contrary to the point of the first amendment is that speech cannot be compelled free speech is directly opposite of compelled speech yes yeah so i think i think eventually it will be a broadly popular decision but i just think the way again the way some media outlets will portray the decision will not be helpful for its understanding in the general public. But our free speech jurisprudence is what it is. And thankfully, across all the judicial philosophies, we have a whole bunch of free speech absolutists, which I'm thankful for. Yes, yeah. Well, let's hit one more deeply unpopular decision. Uh, Yay, all right. Yeah, why not? Uh, Biden versus Nebraska. So decision on student loan forgiveness for, I think, it's been such a big topic. Probably everyone had heard the original proposal from the Biden administration to forgive $10,000 of student loan debt using an old law that had been passed back during 9-11 that would allow the government to forgive certain debts in the midst of a national emergency. And so the administration argued that after COVID, it was a national emergency and therefore they were going to make this student loan debt forgiveness plan, which basically boiled down to they, the Biden campaign had promised student loan forgiveness as a, a pillar of the 2020 campaign. Yeah. It wasn't going to make it through Congress in the normal fashion. And so they found this law that they could try to apply to, to accomplish it. And the Supreme Court 6-3 decision overturned that. Funny thing is, um, if it's always popular, and it always is, when you promise to <laughs> promise to forgive debts, uh, then it's not an emergency. So in a certain way, they may have, I, I don't think they ruled on the merits and we'll get to that in a second, right. but they may have undercut 
uh, their case in court by the way they sold it as a policy to begin with. So that's also interesting. But what I want to say, this is a perfect example of how the result of the case um, doesn't bear zero res re relation to the issues at play, but it bears, bears very little relation to the actual issues at play because the way the court decided was based on um, a separation of powers issue. Right. So essentially, because of the emergency conditions, uh, the court basically said the executive branch was doing something that ought to have been done by the legislative branch. Right. So, so what I'm going to take you back to, if you're listening, is that has nothing to do with the political merits or not of forgiving loan debt. We could argue about that until you and I are both dead and a whole bunch of other people are also dead. Doesn't matter. Wasn't relevant to the actual case. What was relevant is, did the federal government constitutionally, did the executive branch constitutionally overstep its authority to do this? And the answer from the court was yes. So that says to me, to come at it from another direction, if they wanted to try it again, they could just don't run afoul of the separation of powers yeah. as laid out in the Constitution. So very interesting. Yeah, and totally separate from my personal opinions on loan forgiveness itself. Yeah, because who cares about our personal opinions on loan forgiveness? Right, yeah. yeah. No one no one cares. Uh, but just separate from that, I, I'm, I think everyone, if they really stop to think about this decision, should be glad about it. Because whenever your guy isn't in the White House, people complain about all the executive orders being issued by the the evil administration they didn't vote for, right? I mean, right, that, right, right. It doesn't right. matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you complain as long as it's not your guy. And and he, the trend line has been dramatically more executive orders. Every administration just keeps compounding and compounding. Um, if we can get away from that and actually go back to saying, hey, things are supposed to be decided in the legislature. Pass some law. Yeah. yeah. If you want to do it, then get the legislature to work. Wrangle them, make deals, make it happen. Uh, I, I think all of us in the long run will be happier if that's the case. Yep, I agree. And I mean, like you said, they knew they couldn't get it through Congress because they uh, Biden's party lost control of Congress. So um, that wasn't going to go to the House. And good luck in the Senate since they don't really pass anything. But I'm bummed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> the Senate is where good ideas go to die. Uh, <laughs> also true. <laughs> so, um, but they can try again, and and if they want to make the case for another program that is designed in a way that will not violate the Constitution, go for it. Yeah, I mean it's America. Uh, well, so. And, and you know where you can go to find out what the big ideas being discussed are? And you can go there and you can sign up for an account for free to do so. It's our second sponsor of the show, Faithtree.com. Stop oh, by Faithtree. quickly. <laughs> Stop by Faithtree.com to find out the latest news, weather, sports, stocks, you name it. It's there. Stop. Free. Wow. No ads. All you need to do is sign up for a free account. Same account that you'll use for our first sponsored segment of the show, grow.faithtree.com. Sign up today. You won't regret it. Just check it out. The road ahead, it twists and turns and the sun beats down and it burns. But I keep, keep on pushing through. And every step quicker than Comrade. the it wouldn't be a zippy episode, even if we are having our first ever live before studio audience zippy episode. It wouldn't be a zippy episode without an ending Bible segment. So we're going to take a look at Psalm 19, 7 to 14. How's that sound? That sounds good to me. Okay, let's take a look. It says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart Commandment, commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for the living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold. Even the finest gold, they are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. 
How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Boy, there's a lot to, to, to talk about there, and I will attempt to keep it brief since we've been chattering on for quite a good while. But I want to focus on a couple of different aspects. We hear the word commands a couple yeah. times, commandments, laws, mm-hmm. um, the instructions of the Lord. And I think one of our tendencies as Christians is to take the commands of the Lord and abstract them from the biblical context. And the broadest biblical context is the love of God that he has for his people, which eventually broadens out into all people, no matter where they are. Um, And so if we take commandments and laws and abstract them from the covenantal love of God, then it just becomes rules. We Mm. talk about how hard it is just to obey rules. But if you look at this passage, um, they are the commands of the Lord. They are the commands of the Lord that refresh the heart. And the way the commands of the Lord refresh the heart is that it comes by the grace of the Lord, which comes through relationship Mm -hmm. to the Lord. So we consider the commandments of the Lord and his instructions to us in the context of how he's brought us into a loving relationship with him. And we should not consider the commandments of the Lord outside of that. Right. Because that's not how it was written. That's not how it was written even here in the book of Proverbs. Um, all, all the numerous authors in the book of Proverbs were in covenant with the Lord one way or the other. And that was the context in which they wrote. So you can't say, oh Lord, keep me from great sin. Um, who can know the darkness lurking in my heart? You can't say that unless you know the Lord who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So let's start with knowing right. the Lord and then we can talk about obeying the Lord because you can't love what or whom you do not know. Yeah, that that's so, so crucial. Uh, it reminds me, going back to Exodus, look at Exodus 19, you have the people brought out of Egypt and God affirms who he is to them before he ever gives the law. And that seems like it sets the pattern for scripture throughout all of scripture that, like you said, you need to know who it is that's giving the law first. And I, it, it strikes me that we've been talking about black and white approaches to things that we see in society. And I think we do this with this, this as well, where it's sort of, well, either it doesn't matter what I do, God just is fine if I do everything opposite of what he'd like me to do. <laughs> or God is a essentially a theological lawyer who's looking to find my slightest violation and condemn me forever because of it. And what we see instead is something that's neither of those sort of categories. It's that God is that holy, and every single failure is too much. But God also is in, is loving beyond all description. And that, that brings us to the incarnation. That brings us to Jesus and what Jesus does for us. Yeah, and I think one of the amazing things is we we know how, or, you know, if we're Christians or we've at least heard about the Christian good news, the gospel, we've heard how the death of Christ settles the score between us and God. But one of the interesting aspects of Jesus dying on the cross is how he deals with how that sacrifice brings into itself all the little sacrifices in the first seven chapters Mm -hmm. of Leviticus that were all the unintentional sins, all the minor sins, all the... So Jesus on the cross takes that also up with him. He's got enough forgiveness for the big ones too, but he takes all our little faults and says, 
they're right here in this one sacrifice. Uh, you don't have to make the the free will sacrifice and the fellowship sacrifice and the there's a bunch of them in those first seven chapters yes. of Leviticus. And it's not like they went anywhere, but they became subsumed into the sacrifice of Christ. Yes. And just to know that Jesus, whether our sin is great or small or something in between, even if that's only in our head, it still comes back to Jesus is taking care of this. He's made us right to come into the presence of the Lord. And we can bank on that. Yes, yeah. And that sets the stage then for any obedience that comes thereafter, right? Because the New Testament says we can't, we, we're not going to achieve the righteousness of God. We see that, of course, in the Old Testament too, but it becomes fully fledged. Here, here's the solution. Here's how it works. It doesn't then say, now go and ignore everything that God said is good. It's an understanding of how it plays in, right? Because once we understand that Jesus is the one who's provided us with forgiveness and that there's that love of God there, then we start to see and experience what the psalmist is talking about, I believe, where the law of God is good. It's, it's not bad. It's not fearsome. It's not the thing that I know is condemning me. It's rather what the loving Heavenly Father has provided because he knows it's good for me. And he wants me, he wants you, he wants all of us to experience what he designed us to experience and to experience fellowship with him, to experience what we were made to be. And if we understand who he is, that's how we can then understand the law. Remember the parable of the talents. There's the guy that had five talents and then three and then one, or I might have the number wrong, but, uh, and the guy that had one talent, remember he knew that the master was a hard man and he was afraid of him. And he didn't think much of his character, so he took that talent and he buried it in the ground. And then when the master came, the master was like, hey, you could have at least put that on interest at the bank and brought me back two more, at least two more, if not three. And take that talent from him and throw him in prison and give it to the guy that has ten. Um, so the key to that is, it's how we see God. Amen. How we see God. And that's going to determine how we act within the covenant with the Lord. If we love him and if we know that he loves us, we're just free to be the children that we are. If he's a, if we're afraid he's going to whack us with a clipboard, as I like to say, then we're not going to know anything of, of this abiding grace that we've been talking about this abiding of the Holy Spirit, which gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. But when we know that we're loved and secure in the Father's love, then we can do, as we might say, great things for God. Yes. Amen. So that's our prayer for all of you, that you would know Jesus. If you don't, we always, we would love to pray with you. You can email us at zippy at ofb.biz and Jason and I would love to talk to you, love to to share about Jesus with you. That in, That's the undergirding of everything we do here on Zippy. We talk about a lot of topics. We talk about fun, trivial, in the grand scheme of things, topics like, well, I hate to say that and then say Cardinals, but yeah, you know, I mean, baseball seasons are not going to be what we live and die on. We have fun with those things. We talk about serious, heady topics like the Supreme Court tonight, but it all comes back to that we do that as those who love Jesus, and want others to love Jesus, to know that he is with us. And that's why we have our tagline, two Christian guys talking about the news and culture that matter to you. Because we're approaching this, we know there's all this life out here, all these things that we deal with, but it really comes down to, do we know Jesus? Is that how we're going to approach those things? So we're glad to have you here tonight. I hope that this podcast has been an encouragement to you. If you haven't already, you should subscribe to the Zippy the Wonder Snail podcast on your favorite podcasting source, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify. It doesn't matter where. If you can subscribe to podcasts, we're there. We'd love to have you follow us. And that way you get notified as soon as the latest episode comes out. You can also check out our archive at zippythewondersnail.com or brand new. Hey, comrade. You ready for this? Brand new. You don't have to go to zippythewondersnail.com any longer. You can go to snail.zip. 
How's that? Oh, bless. That's another address I won't remember. Yeah. But anyway. Snail.zip. It's short, sweet. You can zip right in and check out all the past episodes. Comrade, this has been so much fun. Thank you, comrade. And I Thank think you, I comrade. yawned on camera. Fire me. Fire Did me. You, for the... Well, that, that just is showing, I mean, that you usually yawn when I'm... Yeah, see, the audience appreciates it, but I know you're yawning every time I talk. I mean, it's just, you know. Every one of your sermons, what can you do? Okay. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Uh, thank you to, to those that are here tonight. Thank you, comrade. Thank you to those listening. It is a joy, and we'll be back next time. <laughs>